Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome back to the OMG MotoGP podcast. As always, you can get in touch at OMG MotoGP on social media, or you can email us a question. Uh, it's OMG MotoGP at gmail.com. You can always leave us a voice note as well. Uh, but on the show today, former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewan and I are joined by a very special guest, two-time world superbike champion and former MotoGP rider, the Texas Tornado. Colin Edwards is here. Welcome, Colin. How are you? Thank you for taking the time. Uh, where are you joining us from at the moment? Paint the scene. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, y'all got me out of bed early. No, that's uh, that's actually a joke. I, I get up and, and bring my little girl to school every day. So I uh, dropped her off and went back to the house, had a shower, and here we are in Montgomery, Texas at Texas Tornado Boot Camp. You better tell us a bit more about the boot camp because I think that a few people around the world, those ones living under a rock, won't know about the boot camp. But if you want to go shooting and riding motorbikes with some top guys, your place is the place to be. Yeah, it is. There's, uh, as I know of, there's not anything like it in the world. So um, the amount of times I've heard it was the best four days of my life, you know, just because it's freedom. Come here and uh, meet some interesting people, ride motorcycles, shoot guns, and have a few beers at night. Where is it? I mean, like, obviously, Kenny Roberts Sr. I mean, you know a lot about Kenny Roberts Jr. He's your era and you raced against him many times. But, I mean, the, the Kenny Roberts Sr. really kicked it all off with the with the ranch style of um, camp, if you like. And you've, you've sort of modified it into the real all-surround fun and games. Uh, yeah, he did. Honestly, it was uh, 1992 when me and Kenny Jr. raced together that uh, I went out and stayed at their place in Hickman. And it was just, you know, small bikes, low risk, but still learning how to do everything you need to do on two wheels. So, um, you know, I came back, we found a piece of property and moved on from there, but I bought this place in 03 and one of my buds was like, Hey man, I think people will pay to come do this and at least keep the lights on. So like, shit, let's give it a go. And, uh, yeah, 2011 was our first year in business. Well, we hear about Valentino Rossi's, you know, training ranch and all the rest of it everybody that goes over there all the superstars but i mean the list of, of people that you have come and play with you i think it's a slightly um what's the word i'm looking for i mean they're obviously serious racers because everybody's a serious racer that plays at the level that you play at um but they like a bit of fun to go with it they like a bit of rough as well don't they yeah we've got it's kind of two sets of folks we have. i mean 
our racer camp in February is normally Peter Hickman and Ellison and that whole crew come in. That's more of a racer, you know, banging bars. And then our other camps are a little more friendly. Average age is probably 40, 42. And it's just your bike enthusiast that wants to come and learn some new skills. What, what what's on the what's behind you for those who can't see we'll, we'll put this on youtube as well but you've got a you've got a bike behind you all sorts of stuff on the wall you've been a, a bit of a workshop area yeah we're at the this is where all the magic happens i guess you'd say so uh <laughs> no this has consumed my life over the last uh oh i don't know four years ever since i started moto so the motocross world is a little bit different than the road race but lots and lots of maintenance mm. you mentioned Hayes. He's been getting better and better and better. I mean, what's your expectations? What's his expectations? Um, it's funny. We just had a conversation last week, and and uh, that's why I, I got the dirt tracker over there. He wants to give a give dirt tracking a try. He wants to give road racing a try. I think he's ultimately going to be maybe an all arounder. You know, do a bit do a bit of everything and uh, see if we can see if we can keep him in road racing. It's a very American thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, flat track and dirt track and so on, there's slight differences there, and motocross, of course. I mean, America is very orientated towards the dirt. I mean, what influenced you in the early days? I mean, who who influenced you? What was the – was it your dad or was it – you know, because your dad, obviously, you are Colin Edwards the second at the end yeah. of the day. Uh, yeah, I would say my dad was uh, was the guy. He uh, uh, he had bought a uh, – you'll probably know, a, a Rickman – uh, chassis with a 750 Honda motor in it had it supercharged um, and him and Ian Kirk up in Scotland they uh, you know they were just buds and rode around everywhere together so my dad was road racing that was his his passion and then at three years old you can go road racing so he just bought us a dirt bike and we went out rode dirt bikes and then we started racing and then from there it was all I could really do is motocross so we motocross and I was factory Yamaha for a few years, and uh, at the age of 14, I just got to, got, uh, got sick of it, kind of burnt out on it, I guess, and only swapped over to road racing a couple of years later. Phases of life, I mean, through all of this stuff. I mean, your, your career has taken several phases, hasn't it, the way it's moved on through. I mean, and, and add to that marriage, obviously, your lovely wife and kids as well, which obviously I won't say interferes with the, the professional um player because i don't think anything interferes with you on a motorbike that is for sure but i mean the phases of life well, i mean which phase did you like the most which 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 was the big deal for you when you really knew that you were going to be the tornado uh you know i had this question occasionally it's like how did you make it kind of or what, what was the moment um and when i quit moto i honestly just went to school and, and didn't think anything out of it and a couple of, a couple of years later my dad's like let's go watch a road race so and a buddy that I used to beat motocross, and he was winning. Um, so I was like, man, if he can do it, I know I can do it. So we went out and tested. And the only way I can put it is, like, I had all my options taken away. The only option I had was to go fast on a road race motorcycle. And that's how I looked at it. It was either that or get a job. So getting a job sounded kind of shitty. <laughs> a real job. <laughs> so I was like, you know, just having all my options taken away and looking at it like that, it, it became very easy, to be honest. And I, I that time from 90 to uh, 99 to 2002, like those are, let's say, the golden years. 
Colin, we're all dodging a real job. Harry's in our slipstream. He's, he's trying <laughs> to stay the same way. He, he's, he's trying to emulate us, really. Yeah. There except, you go. except I can't race to save my life. I just shout about other people doing it. <laughs> they won't, I won't fit that in a car. Hurt quite so much, except somebody that you might have talked about that comes over and punches you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's clear, though, Colin. I mean, you've got to, and you see this with a lot, a lot of athletes, don't you? You have to have that one track mind early doors. You've got to want it above everything else. And, just fast forwarding a little bit, we'll come back to, to to going through your career. But I just want to get your opinions on on the the scenes from from MotoGP at the moment, particularly Mark Marquez. We know where his mind is at now. It's quite often been a one track mind, but it's been up in the air for the last few months, I suppose. And a Honda man through and through now changes for next season and, and goes on the Ducati. I mean, you've raced with, with lots of different manufacturers throughout your career. What, what What's your views on, on Mark Marquez's situation? Uh, almost, I almost want to say what took you so long. You know, I mean, he's uh, he's been fighting it for, for a couple of years now and, and getting injured and all that stuff doesn't, doesn't help. So I think it's yeah it's about time I, and i think he's gonna jump over and he's gonna be fast and he's if he goes any longer on the honda it's it's gonna be hard for to say marquez lose confidence because the guy is so much full of confidence but you can't stay on it no longer he needs he needs to move really interesting uh, that i'm i'm just i've just while you were speaking colin i just pulled up a, a pete mclaren um crash.net for those of you that want to read the full uh, interview. So Pete McLaren, who works a bit with us on OMG as well. Um, one particular quote that he pulled off from, from Mark, and this is interesting, Colin, you'll enjoy this. So right now, for physical condition, I feel okay. Mental side, I'm not the same. I'm more mature, but right now, less convinced on the racetrack. Why? Because we are struggling more, and in that 2019 period, I was winning nearly every weekend or fighting for the podium. Then you have a lot of confidence in yourself. Now, after a difficult moment where you think you performed in a good way, but the results never arrived, you don't have the same confidence, but we're working on it. So even he is questioning really where he's going to be next year when he jumps on this Ducati. Yeah, I mean, I can totally understand that. And after you've been getting beaten up, you know, a, a year or two or three or however long he's been getting beaten up, it, it just, it wears on him. It just, it definitely wears on him. So it'll be interesting. I think in my brain, I think he's going to be fast. He's going to be at the sharp end, no question. You've been busy. I mean, with what you do on the on the boot camp and the like. I mean, you've got a full on life. There's no doubt about it. Family wise and the like. And Texas, uh, <laughs> Texas isn't like America. Texas is <laughs> Texas is its own country. There is no doubt about it. That that you guys do everything completely different to everybody else, anywhere else in America. Um, busy, busy, busy. But I've got to ask you, what happened to the television? You were you were with us on TV, and all of a sudden you disappeared off, off the, once that pandemic came along, you never came back. What happened? Yeah, you know, it's weird. Um, uh, I have my own faith in what I, what I think is, is right, but everything happens for a reason. I mean, you've heard that saying before. And in my life, it just seems like everything happens for a reason all the time. And uh, the pandemic hit, and that was a month before the pandemic hit is when Hayes started motocrossing. He was like, I want to go motocross. So 
we were every weekend traveling to wherever we could just to get track time and even and because i was about to jump on the flight and had the guitar uh, for the first race and that was like hell i don't know how i'm gonna do this i don't know how i'm gonna keep my son you know let him do his journey and then me continue to do what i'm doing it's just not gonna work and uh and then i got the phone call hey we're not going to guitar i was like okay well shit well, and in Texas, we didn't get shut down. We went motocrossing every weekend. So it kind of all happened at the right time. So the TV deal dropped off uh, just at the time when Hayes was beginning to perform. You're right. Everything does happen for a reason. Well, let's talk about the the other things that, that hopefully you won't be able to find a reason for it. I mean, <laughs> World Superbike. I mean, obviously, World Superbike, you were in it in its heyday when it was coming on through. But, um, I mean, what what... How did those deals come together? Because it always looked to me like you were right on the edge of not having a deal half the time. It, yeah. Somehow, uh, you managed to find one just in the, the, at the 11th hour. Yeah, that, and especially like you're talking the Honda ride. I mean, I had the Yamaha ride, uh, 95 through 97. Uh, Ruggia took me out of Monza, broke all kinds of stuff. So I was out the whole year in 97 for the last eight races or whatever. And yeah, it was looking like, what the hell? I mean, you had Nori Hoggard who just signed, and then you had Scott Russell, who still had his second year for 98. And uh, it was, yeah, the 11th hour, Neil Tuxworth, obviously. Um, oh, damn, John uh, Kaczynski. He had in his contract that if he won the World Championship Superbike, he could go back and race the 500. So he put that thing together with Kanemoto, and then there was a seat open. You know, the, the World Championship seat that just won the World Championship but was open. So, and Tuxworth had seen what I was doing on the Yamaha and kind of caught my eye a little bit and Honda as well. So, it, it all worked out. Well, it certainly did for you in the UK because you are, a, a, you know, basically British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can, you can exactly. fly two flags. You run under a dual flag. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Te- Texas and the UK. Um, I mean, even I still go to a pub up the road here. Well, obviously I do because Chris Herring runs the runs the pub, and then yeah. there's the the Indian restaurant that's got pictures of Colin Edwards all over it. Oh, the Raj, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I even remembers the name of the Indian restaurant. That's the Raj in Kettering for anybody who wants to go past there. They'll love that. Uh, it's delicious. Go go tomorrow. Go tonight if you can. <laughs> Free I'm, going, I'm at Chrissy's pub tonight. Actually, he's got a comedy <laughs> night tonight, and uh, so we'll we'll be thinking of you. I'll I'll, I'll drink on behalf of you. Perfect, awesome. But, but do it badly in comparison <laughs> with you. <laughs> That's key. Was, was there never was there never an opportunity with Ducati back in the day? Yeah, it's a weird story because uh, in O two, when uh, at the end of O two, um. Honda more or less collapsed the uh, the World Superbike team. So I'd had a deal signed uh, with basically taking Bayless' spot on Ducati since Bayless was going to MotoGP. And uh, I had a, the last race. You know, the when me and Bayless were going after it, uh, I already had a contract signed to take his spot. So um, then came home and a, a couple of weeks went by and then... Uh, Aprilia called and said, hey, we've got this whole truckload of money and a really shitty bike, but do you want to come ride it in MotoGP? So I did the math and I was like, if I can get out of this thing with 
Chiabati and, and Dominicali. If I can get out, then I just I need to go there first and see if it's even possible. So I flew over there and had a meeting with him, and I was like, listen, this is the story. I'll totally understand if y'all want me to stay here and do this. My dream would be to go there and see if I can fulfill another GP career. And uh, they pretty much straight up were like, we want you to do what you want to do. We don't want to get in the way of your career. We've got riders that can win a world championship anyways, so we don't necessarily have to have you on the bike. And especially with Honda being out, so it's kind of a guarantee that, you know, 03 or 04, they were going to win the championship. So it worked out. And, uh, yeah, I, I still, we still chat about it every now and then with the Ducati guys. And they always give me the look like, oh, yeah, one day, one day. You know, it's just Jack and Whitney. <laughs> that cube I, didn't work out quite so well, though, did it? No, no. That thing barbecued my nuts. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it was just. The term born bad, it was born bad. It's everything about it. But you, you look at, obviously, it was not not a great start. But, I mean, look at the last couple of seasons for, for the likes of Aprilia and, and that change. I mean, were, were you surprised to, to, to see them come come to the fore so much? And actually, the you know, in the recent times, the, the Japanese manufacturers falling behind. And, and now you, the Europeans are, are leading the way in MotoGP. Yeah, I know. It's really weird. Um, I mean, we can call it what it is or, or where all the technologies come from, but yeah, the, the, the European bikes have definitely dominated here recently. And I don't know if that be wings or the ride height adjustments, squatting the bike on the exit, all this stuff. It seems like European bikes kind of have it nailed and the Japanese bikes are a little bit behind on that. You talk about frying your nuts. You try your other end, I think, trying to work everything that you need to work now since your era. I remember when they went to Magnani Morelli to the the Spec Electrics when you were on the the the, the Yamaha. Yeah, I mean that nearly fried your brain just to get involved with that. And now when you've got so many gadgets and gizmos that are hanging off the motorbike, I mean how how do you see it from a, from a Colin Edwards point of view, a very straightforward point of view? I mean, how do you see all this stuff? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing or is it are you indifferent about it? Uh, I'm a little bit indifferent about it. I mean, honestly, I've had this question too. In 2003, that Aprilia Cube was the first bike that had all ride-by-wire. Um, there wasn't any cables or any, it was all ride-by-wire. So, um, and we did we did that for a reason. You know, we did that for technology to to go forward, move forward. And, and if I was to say I didn't like any of this shit, um, that year would have been a waste. You know what I'm saying? It, pretty much my whole career after that, uh, three, four, up to 14, when I quit, we were always trying to find the next little thing, you know, the next little gadget, the next little piece of electronics to help you go a tenth, two tenths quicker. So it is what it is. And the smart guys right now are showing you how smart they are. And what about the riders we've we've got a riders union that seems to be um coming out of the woodwork for, for next year from next year which for me it's a it's a, it's a slightly strange thing because i thought riders are, especially in MotoGP or that class the premier class have been quite good at making their thoughts known across whatever you know particular piece of officialdom they've got to get over i mean do, do you think a, a riders union is going to be uh, a, a good thing do they need it really at the end of the day to to make things work better for the riders of today 
Well, this the, is... well, let me ask you this. Do you think the riders are being forced, like forced labour at the moment, with sprint races and Grand Prix and an extended um, calendar? They're not asked about any of that. So do we need a riders' union to kind of put a cap on that kind of stuff? I've never really looked at it that way, but you just brought up some very valid points. And I think, uh, I think also when you look at the pay, I mean, obviously your top guys are getting millions, but you've got a number of guys on that grid riding for less than half a million or whatever. So it's, uh, I wouldn't necessarily go with forced labor. Come on now. Uh, <laughs> they're still, they're still doing what they love to do, but it's, uh, yeah, it's brutal. It's definitely brutal now with the with the with the sprint races and and with the war out on the calendar. What have you um? What have you? I, I was curious when I was reading up on you and and as as everyone though, I'm obviously I come from a, a four wheel background, but one of your teammates throughout the years uh, is still on the grid in MotoGP, Alicia Spargro. Hey, one of now in his twilight years, I think it's fair to say. But funnily enough, the last couple of years is when he's probably had the best seasons of of his career. When you look at something like that, are, are you quite pleased through? Is it is it nice to see? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and and Alish came from. Oh, he did that CRT thing with me in twelve or whatever, whatever year that was, uh, and they were horrible things to ride. So it kind of to come from there. Um, and that, here's my teammate in what year was it? 14 or whatever. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's well-deserved. You know, it, it's, you don't, you don't ever know what, when your right time is going to be. Um, it can be when you're 18, it can be when you're 28. You just don't really know when everybody's different. So for him to have, have it going on around is awesome. I remember you saying to me, 2014 it was when uh, they switched those bloody electronics to the spec ECUs and stuff that made the bikes bloody almost unrideable to start with until everyone yeah. figured out the software. And Aleish got on with it, I think, at the time. He managed to fathom a way around it a little bit better than you were at that particular time. Oh, um, hell yeah. He was, I think he got pole at Qatar that year, if I'm not mistaken. And he was so fast. I was like, how in the hell is he picking this pile of shit around this track so fast? But he managed to do it. We got to go there with teammates. I'm sorry to say, we got to go there. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm all good. Let's let's under, let's let's go to JT, shall we? Let's uh, let's get James Tozen on the, in the conversation. I mean, obviously, both riding for Tech Three, Hervé Poncharal, Guy Coulon, two fantastic managers, team owners back in the day, and still are actually very old school. Um, I mean, the rumor was that that JT wasn't particularly happy with what you were getting on your side of the garage. So Hervé and Guy kind of flipped the whole thing and gave you his side of the garage and you took over JT's side of the garage. Is that how it was? That's pretty much kind of how it worked. I think, um, you know, it's weird. I had a, uh, yeah, I, and, you know, me working, I, I just kind of got put in Gary, to be honest. I didn't really know Gary. Um and then you remember my motorhome driver, Paul Sannon. Paul kind of knew that whole crowd as well. Um, and then, and I'm not saying me and Gary, me and Gary got along all right. I mean, I, we didn't, no complaints. Um, but then, yeah, at the end of the year, Irve pulled me aside and was like, hey, uh, have you heard what's going on? I'm like, no, I don't know what's going on. This is at Valencia. Like, this is after the last race. But yeah, they're, uh, wanting to swap around and da, da, da. and I didn't have a whole lot to do with Geek Long 
that year because he was with James and I was, you know, with Gary. So I said, well, shit, if that's the option, then I'll kick his ass with Yeet and we'll just swap the script. So, um, and we did in the next year, that was the best move I made as far as at tech three, or, you know, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel was going to equal because he's so damn smart and some of the problems we encounter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, it was just a good team. I mean, my communication, his communication, and us together worked really good. On that subject, I mean, what team did you enjoy the joy the most i mean without chucking anybody under the bus or you can chuck them under the bus if you like it's a long time ago but i mean it's uh did you did you have a team that was a real colin edwards style the kind of style you bit of fun professional obviously but but with a bit of crack to go with it um i, I mean man honestly every team has its own <clears throat> i loved all of them to be honest um i'd say the the one team that set me up that kind of made me who I am, you know, made me come out, be the guy I was. And that was, uh, and that was a Honda team. You know, the, all the English folks there, it was the Castro Honda team. Was, and Neil Tuxworth was a big part of that just because I'd get super pissed or I'd be happy. And, and Neil was like, Hey man. And I was, I was always wondering why I would have a good race. And, you know, on the Yamaha side, you finish fifth or sixth, everybody's patting you on the back. Good job, good job, good job. Well, you just start to believe in that shit. You know, it's like, okay, that's a good job. I did a good job. And then when I went to Honda, like after my first race, I think I finished maybe on the podium or I had a good race. I thought I came in and nobody wanted to look at me. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what the shit's going on here? I was like, man, it was like somebody's cat died that I don't know about. So... And then whenever we won at Monza that year, and everybody was still kind of the same. I mean, they were happy, but they weren't overjoyed like crazy. Just And if you're asking me a question, what team kind of was fun that, that made me who I am, I would say that that Castro Honda team. Just got a more even keel, run with it. You have a shit weekend, there's always next weekend. You were well trained for television, you know, because... <laughs> There is no place worse than television for people coming up to you and saying, great job, did a fantastic job, that was a perfect show, when you know it was shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. In your heart of heart. Television people are, are, are a little bit that way inclined, so um, you were pretty well trained for it. <laughs> I mean, there are obviously 
times in in your racing career um, that are a little bit testing, should we say? Um, you know, in '95, Nagai was killed in Assen, which we all remember so well. I mean, these things sometimes come home a bit too close, don't they? Mm-hmm. But then, having had that, you obviously needed to get over that. But then you a first-hand party in probably, you know, everyone's a tragedy. Please don't get me wrong when I'm saying yeah. that this, this was a major tragedy. That's to everybody outside. But the the Simoncelli thing at Sepang, obviously we've got Sepang coming up this weekend, which is why I'm bringing yeah. it up. Turn 11, we were all shocked. Yeah. No one has ever seen a motorcycle reacting the way it did with him on it. Yeah. Which gave you and Valentino absolutely no opportunity apart from to, to get involved. Yeah. I mean, these things are a big deal, and we're still seeing kids killed now. Um, yeah, in no, anyway, circumstances. So we're going to come back to where you're at. But in '92, I had a really good friend that was AMA Superbike Bansel Hines. His name was Larry Schwartzback, oh. and he died as well. So yeah, it was '93, uh, '92, '95, and then yeah, then up to Simoncelli. But, I mean, we had some moments, obviously, throughout there, but. Hey, it's a dangerous sport. I mean, we all know. I know every time I get in my car to go to the airport that I uh, this might be my last trip. You know, I mean, it's we all know it. Um, but we. I'm smiling. I'm smiling because your wife says you drive like an old lady, so you ain't gonna get uh, killed in your truck. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I haven't had a speeding ticket in probably thirty years. You so. are the slowest, fastest <laughs> man I've ever come across. <laughs> I'm like, I'll just see you at the next red light, man. I'm not in that much of a hurry. <laughs> oh dear. I'm, it, the um, we've had a couple of questions that have come in as well for you that I want to try and pepper in throughout. And just to go back slightly, you were talking about uh, rivalries. Um, and where is it? Extremes uh, has asked, what was your favourite? championship battle in world superbikes uh it had to be you know 2000 through 2002 with with bayless was uh definitely my my favorite years uh i mean i know he he came back to world superbike after another gp but at that time we were we were at the sharp end and we were it was so much fun because i could develop my own tires Michelin were there he was developing his own tires that worked for his bike. So it's kind of the guy that did the most work, you know, was, uh, was up, up well, top of the box. Mm. Winning in world Superbikes, you were pretty much used to that. It eluded you somewhat in MotoGP, um, despite the fact you had inherent speed, but you just couldn't quite nail that one. Um, I, I, I'm reluctantly going to go to Assen, of course, because that's the one you get reminded of all of the time. But I think on a broader basis, I mean, you look like a race winner, but never quite managed it in MotoGP. What do you yeah. Think? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. It's weird. I had a couple moments, um, you know, uh, Donington in, in 04, but Valentino was just faster than me. Um, 04 again with uh, Sete at uh, Qatar. And if Nicano wouldn't have blown, blown his bike up and smoked us out, I wouldn't have lost that two seconds. And I had pace that weekend. Um, obviously, Assen 06. I mean, there, there were some opportunities, but when I look back, there weren't a whole lot. You know, it's not like 
I wasn't there every weekend at the sharp end. I had tracks that I was good at, um, but some tracks I just couldn't find the speed, couldn't find the setup. And I think one of the major, if I was to reach in and grab something, it's, I was 29 when I first got on a MotoGP bike. So it was already, I would say, past my higher testosterone level days, if that makes any sense. So it, it, and I had had a great career up to that point, you know, I mean, I had won a shit ton of races, a couple world championships, had most beautiful wife, kid on the way. And I think, uh, I was pretty content with, with what I was doing. You do have a beautiful wife. There's no doubt about that, but so do I. But one day she said to me, you're the best husband so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully so I'm the only. Hopefully I'm the only. I don't know. We're uh, we're both getting toward our fifties. I think she's pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, you're fifty in February. I can't believe that. Shit, me neither. I feel old as shit. <laughs> getting out of bed every morning, all beat up. Um, hey, I can tell you, it don't get any better. <laughs> I know. I know. That's where I'm like. I can't I wait. Don't know, I don't know what I got to get on. I got to get on some old band pills, some boner pills, or some whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they don't work. I think they oh. don't work. <laughs> Shit. Don't well, say that. Uh, if we might, we might get a sponsorship out of something like that. So don't don't <laughs> say that just yet. <laughs> um, look, Colin. Another question to throw at you. We we sort of um, spoke about uh, sort of modern MotoGP earlier on, but puppies and motorcycles. What a combination! Has asked. Um, do you like the sprints in MotoGP? And do you think any of the seasons you raced in would have a different outcome if there was a sprint at every round? Um. Yeah, I, li- I kind of like the sprints. Honestly, it, it's uh, it's it's fast paced, which you know it always is. But just being able to give everything you got for ten laps instead of a whole twenty-seven laps or whatever makes it interesting. Um, I do believe back in our day, uh, especially that oh oh three to oh eight before Bridgestone came in and took over all the tires. I think when you had Bridgestone and Michelin. Um, because sometimes you'd have a, a killer qualifying tire um, that would only do a lap, but then you had one that might do 10 laps. So, but then you had to run this rock hard thing for the race. So, yeah, I think it would have changed up a little bit uh, in our day for sure. Just just because you had the tire war going on and they, they would have made just a 10 lap tire. At what time, at what date, what year did you stop missing racing motorbikes? Every, every racer I know has a different period. Some can't wait to be finished and kind of the last, the, the, the year after they're, they're okay with that. But some, it takes years for them to get to the point where they're relaxed with the fact they're not flat out and flying around the world for it still. Man, honestly, uh, I think it was, it was my last race. Uh, you know, at, uh, what was it? Indy? Um, yeah, I was, I was over it. I was I was ready to get off the bike, um, you know. When I was forty, I've been racing motorcycles since I was four. So you know, thirty six years of of doing what I was doing, and it just became it was getting a lot with three kids and missing a lot of time uh, at home trying to fit sixteen or whatever races and and testing and all that shit. So 
uh, I was ready. And people ask me every day since then, they're like, do you miss it? Do you miss it? I'm like, hell no, I don't miss it. I'm perfectly fine on this side of the fence. Were you satisfied at the end of the day that you left nothing on the table? Did you give it everything every day? You had to. I mean, you can't really survive in that paddock if you don't do that. In both paddocks, I think you you have to lay your balls on the line, whether you want to or not. But then at the end of the day, that just becomes normality, you know, or that just is commonplace. You just go lay your balls on the line, do the absolute best you can do, and then you go home. And that's that's it. Was there anybody in the paddock that you worked with that didn't pull their weight? You know, there's nothing worse than being in a team, being in an environment where you are laying your balls on the line and you are giving it everything you can. And somebody somewhere is is kind of holding the job up, whether that be management or and not so much technicians, because we know they all they give everything as well. Those guys are beside you normally. It's very rare that you're working against your own techs. But I mean, from a from a management point of view, you know, some of those guys are less than palatable. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying and what you're asking. Uh, I think in reality, if you don't pull your weight around there, you don't last long. Uh, the MotoGP paddock seems to love overachievers that uh, you know can can hustle and bustle and, and predict what's already got to happen and get tires changed and get wets ready and like that's uh, that's just kind of commonplace. That's the guys you want on your team, and I have never really incurred having somebody where you're just like what a lazy bastard you know what's he doing on this team i've never really had that what was rossi did you ever like have management oh. sorry harry sorry mate no you go what? keith did you ever have management what do you mean well people that looked after you financially oh. people who looked after your career or was no, it Colin Edwards shooting from the hip as we are it, we used to it, it's funny you say that because i was just talking to wayne rainey uh, a couple of days ago about moto america stuff and I was like, I don't know if you know this, but I was the only guy in the paddock, uh, including Moto2, Moto3, everybody, or every year that I was there that I managed myself. I negotiated all my own contracts. I signed all my own contracts. It was, uh, never had management. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it to myself to take away 20% or whatever that was and pay some dude that's, this kind of talking for me and signing shit for me. I'm like, well, my dad taught me. I mean, my dad did in the beginning, the first few years. And then once he got sick, I saw how he did it. And I knew what everybody's worth was as far as what everybody was getting paid. Uh, helmets, boots, leathers. So it was, it was pretty easy to be honest. So how do you, how do you, um, what do you think about these guys that, you know, your helmet polisher, for instance, for one of a better phrase. <laughs> yeah. That's getting forty thousand dollars for someone to polish your helmet. Yeah, I mean it's, <clears throat> you know, um, I had a motorhome driver, uh, a couple different motorhome drivers, and kind of his second job, if if I asked him to, was to polish my helmet. <laughs> 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 Not really in the sense, of, but anyways, and they were just friends. Also, you know, I didn't have my wife and kids at the track all the time, so you had somebody there. You'd hang out with, go to dinner with, uh, eat lunch with, um, but yeah, it's it's become more of the norm now to have to have your your own helmet polisher. I don't think I'd ever put my wife in a position alongside with my helmet polisher. It really <laughs> works <too> well. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, I'm curious to know, Colin, what was 
Valentino Rossi like to have as a teammate? Oh, he was awesome. Uh, our story is so weird because, uh, you know, he was in Honda when I was in Honda and uh, 2000 in his contract, they wanted him to go do Suzuki eight hour. Uh, and I had won it in 96 with Haga on the Yamaha. So I was already going to be doing it and they put us together um, and it worked out great. And we just became instant friends. It was the easiest thing in the world. Um, Uchio was there, his helmet polisher, so to say, best friend for years. Um, and yeah, Valentino had a couple other guys there, just Italian friends. And we all hit it off. We all, you know, going to dinner and lunch every day. And it just, it was an instant friendship. And then, uh, in 03, 04, when I was on the Honda Telefonica, that's when, uh, they needed a replacement rider side Valentino for, for five, six and seven. And Lynn Jarvis came, you know, I already had a contract with Lynn Jarvis from Superbike days. So I kind of knew everybody there. And they said, yeah, Valentino wants you as a teammate to come ride the bike. I was like, hell yeah, let's go. Lynn Jarvis has managed to keep a, a job for a long time in the big paddock. He has, he, he's some dealer. There's no doubt about it, but not getting yeah. into that. What, um, <laughs> what is the, from your perspective, I mean, world Superbikes versus MotoGP. I mean, what comes out on top for you when you watch it, consider it, see the way that they're going? I mean, what, what, what gives you the most entertainment out of those two classes? Um, honestly, I haven't watched the world Superbike and, I don't know, beginning of the year, maybe. I, I, this motorcycle behind me, I'm always working on it. So I don't really have much time to do anything else. Um, but I don't know. I think they both have their place. And I, I, I'm not going to say one or the other. I think and the only way I've ever put it is like your super bike is like sitting on your couch. Uh, the low GP bikes like sitting on the stool that I'm sitting on. They're just two, they are two different animals. And uh, I think you've got enough talent around the world to fill both grids. Mm -hmm. um, we're running uh, towards the end, Colin. So I'm going to fire through some of the more listener questions that have come, th uh, come in. All things MotoGP is asked, what was your favorite MotoGP race and what was your favorite season? Oh, favorite MotoGP race? Well, it wasn't Assen. No, it wasn't Assen for sure. Um, oh, damn. Um, that's a tough it's one. It's been ten I, years. It's been I know. Years. I know. Well, and you know, honestly, like the the '05 season on the '990s with Valentino on the factory Yamaha team, that was a blast because I was still I was only 31, still had a little bit. Um, that was a good year. Uh, and then the next year when we went to or no, 2007, oh, 05, 06, and then 07 we went to that 800. That was not enjoyable at all because that thing was the slowest damn thing on the grid. Um, but then once we got back to, you know, a couple of years later at Tech Three, they were good times too. I had such a good time with Tech Three. They're all just a good, good group of guys. Uh, Nicholas asks, um, when did you start the superstition of scuffing new leathers up before you wore them? <laughs> That's weird. I just thought everybody did it, to be honest. Because. <laughs> <laughs> And in my brain, it's, I, I don't know if I saw somebody do it early on. I mean, I'm talking like the first time I went to the racetrack, uh, maybe, but it, it just made sense. Introduce the leathers to the asphalt now. Uh, you know, y'all make friends and, <laughs> and, and 
then it's over. You know, theoretically, that's kind of how my brain worked, but it uh, didn't usually work out like that. I was going to say, you'd be setting off your airbag if you did that nowadays. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not quite as uh, simple as it once was. Um, Widder has asked, do you manage to, have you managed to get hold of any Newcastle Brown over in Texas? Ah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We can get Nuki Brown. (laughs) Absolutely. Nuki Brown, the North York Road Racing Supporters Club in North Allerton, of all places. I have seen this man so far out of his face on Nuki Brown. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were always big nights. They were fun. <laughs> well, I think that answers that one then, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> um, Pat has actually asked uh, to go the complete opposite direction. Uh, quite a quite a serious question. Um, but I think one that is good. What would you do to make grassroots racing more popular in Texas? Oh, shit. Um What's the scene? What's the scene like now? You know where you are, and and over in America, how how is motorbike racing in general perceived? Obviously, I know Moto America is is there. Yeah, it's hard to. I, it's not. It's not really worth the shit, to be honest with you. I mean, you got to search and get in the right clubs and go to. You know, you got your dirt track series, your motocross series, your winter series. You got a bunch of different things going on, um, but. As far as road racing, it's tough. I mean, it, it, for for younger folks to go out, they do have the Little Valleys, the Little Valley Cup or whatever it's called that they go play on. They go do track days. Um, and we've got a young girl here that works at, at camp, and uh, she goes road races all the time. So it's there. It's just not It's not on a level like, you know, Spain or Italy or are we going to ever see you back on television? Are you ever going to be back in the broadcast world and giving us your your very, um, should we say, unique viewpoint on some of these things? <laughs> I don't think so, honestly. I mean, you know, I would never say no forever, but, I mean, if the opportunity arose, then maybe, but I'm pretty happy. I'm more, I'm, I, right now, I'm living the best days of my life. I don't, I don't have any pressure on not saying shit on live TV or whatever. So it's uh... I was going to come to that. Do you feel the kind of the way that personalities are squashed a little bit more nowadays with uh, with having to comply with so many different rules oh. in the likes of broadcasting? Do you feel like personality-wise, you can't just be Colin Edwards? No, for sure. I mean, you know, folks that watch me on BT Sport or whatever, I mean, you get a glimpse of who I am, but it's you still have to dot your eyes and crush your T's and be, uh, yeah, accept When did you do that? I never really noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was hard because we would bullshit and say whatever the hell we wanted and then, all right, ready, go. Oh, shit. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the beef jerky. I don't get it oh, anymore. Oh, I know, man. Shit. <clears throat> yeah, we got some good stuff here. Well, um, Colin, will you get a chance to go to uh, Austin next season for for the MotoGP? Are you interested in that when it's, I suppose, near-ish to your door? Um, Yeah, I'm interested, always interested. But it just, it it depends on what the schedule is behind me on the moto side. And uh, I think the last couple of years we've been, we've had a race going on. So it's been, uh, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not going to commit to anything. I just, I go with the flow and... Well, we go racing. Well, uh, we're going to try and get so out of there. Calm, cool, and collected. That's for sure. I have to say that uh, seeing you so relaxed, it's the way to be at fifty years old. Oh yeah, there, there's no other way. 
Yeah. I think that's a really nice place to uh, to leave it. Colin Edwards, thank you so much for, for taking the time, first of all. It's massively appreciated to everybody sending questions as well. Um, Keith and I will be back for, for extra on Thursday. Uh, Colin, we'll have to get you back on at some stage. We'll drag you back on kicking and screaming. Uh, we might try and get on. We might, we might try and go out to Austin next year. So if we're there, we'll definitely have to drag you along as well. Um, so Colin Edwards, thank you so much for coming on the OMG MotoGP podcast. You got it, man. Thanks, guys, for having me. And next time, I won't have such shit Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it was fine at the end. All good. <laughs>